Coming up on the Keto Camp Podcast, how the body heals itself with Merrick Doyle. A cell, when subject to stress, will typically activate what we could call the cellular protection response or the antioxidant response, specifically that NRF2 response. And that produces antioxidants, endogenous antioxidants to help counter that. But again, how far can we go? The only thing that's more amazing than the humans, uh, human body's ability to handle stress is how far we push it until it eventually falters. We have access to ancient healing strategies such as ketosis, fasting, and carnivore. And on the Keto Camp podcast, we are determined to deliver the science to you. We bring in the thought leaders in this space to have extraordinary conversations so you could apply it and change your life. Your body was built to thrive. Your body is capable of healing as long as you identify the interference and remove it. I believe you are a masterpiece because you are a piece of the master. My name is Ben Azadi. I'm the best-selling author of Keto Flex, and I want to thank you for spending part of your day with me. Hey, hey, Keto Camper. Hope you're having a phenomenal day. I've got a ton of vitamin G for you, as always. Gratitude. I got to tell you, when I started researching and preparing for the interview with Merrick, I was really impressed with him. He's based out of the UK. You'll tell by his accent. You might follow him if you live in the UK. But it wasn't until a few months ago that I actually discovered him. And looking at his lectures, his research, his articles, his fantastic website, the man understands health and nutrition and how the body heals. He's done over 11,000 tests on clients and he, he understands the body very, very well. So we're going to get into his backstory. I asked him how he even got involved in the health space. Fascinating backstory. And we're going to get into these topics. The body's self-healing factor. Inside of your body, as you know, you have this innate intelligence. It's when it's interfered with, symptoms and disease manifest. But those symptoms and diseases, we've been brainwashed to believe they're evil. We hate them, but we should actually love them and be thankful for them because they are your body's check engine light. We're going to talk about the flaws with popular weight loss methods. A lot of influencers and nutritionists and dietitians and doctors claim the energy balance is the way energy in, energy out, or actually calories in versus calories out is how you lose weight. But we'll talk about why that's flawed. We'll get into the keto diet, the pros and cons, and how doing it right could be so healing, but doing it wrong could be actually detrimental. So we'll talk about the misconceptions that still exist with keto. Then we'll get into one of my favorite topics, the mitochondria. And what happens when the mitochondria gets into the cell danger response when it's too much stress? We'll talk about the mitochondria being a surveillance system for cellular threats and what to do to upgrade your mitochondria. We also discuss things to consider before you even do diet, uh, environmental toxins, the immune system. This is a phenomenal interview. You're going to love it. If you want to watch the video format of today's interview and all podcast interviews, you can watch those on our YouTube channel, which is youtube.com slash keto camp. We'll reference that down below. Before I bring on Merrick, I do want to acknowledge 
and give a shout out to today's podcast rating and review of the day. This is an Apple podcast review, five stars from Kimberly in Colorado, titled Amazing. Thank you. Here's what Kimberly said. Ben, I first heard you during the Sugar Summit, the Quit Sugar Summit. I have to say I'm a huge fan. In a short amount of time, I've learned so much from you. Thank you for all that you do in educating, and the world is in such need of this. I'm listening to your podcast and learning so much. That is awesome, Kimberly. I'm so glad you found me on the Quit Sugar Summit. I love the Quit Sugar Summit. Kimberly, thank you. If you have not left the Keto Camp Podcast a rating and review on whatever platform you're listening from today, please take a quick minute to just pause this episode and leave that rating and review. And hey, maybe I'll read yours and give you a shout out on the next episode. Okay, let's have an amazing conversation with Merrick. Merrick Doyle has spent the last 17 plus years developing a model of individualized nutrition based on data from over 3,000 individual outcomes, 11,000 plus testing findings, and significant utilization of the scientific literature. He's a functional nutrition therapist. In addition to his academy training course for practitioners and enthusiasts in London, England, Merrick offers one-on-one consults for customers. He also holds a Master of Science degree in personalized nutrition. Here is Merrick Doyle. Hey, Merrick, welcome to the Keto Camp Podcast. Well, thanks for having me on. I was just telling you offline that I was really impressed studying you and getting ready for this episode. You are a wealth of, of knowledge and you do a really good job at, yes, reading the literature, reading the, the research out there, and but also merging it and being in the trenches. You've worked with thousands of clients, 3,000 plus You've ran 11,000 plus tests on them. And it, doing that amount of volume with 3,000 plus people gives you such an amazing understanding that we're blessed to have today on the show. So I can't wait to dive into that with you. And before we do, how has this journey been for you? 17 plus years in the space. How did it get started? And what are like the overall themes you've learned along the way? So yeah, I sometimes find it weird to think that 17 years can go by just like that. But of course, it hasn't. There's been a lot of lessons, a lot of them harsh along the way that have guided me towards, yeah, understanding this on a deeper level. And most of that all comes down to one question, when is something likely to work? And when is something not likely to work? And in who? Which is obviously an entirely different question to the one that the human brain naturally arrives at, which is what's good, what's effective. And the disappointing answer that I have for most people with those questions is it depends. Obviously, nuance is not sexy, but nuance is so important when we're dealing with humans because we have this growing cult of science, or should we say the science, and there's this growing tendency in our industry to talk a good game about evidence-based medicine when most people don't understand that evidence-based medicine is not the use of evidence. Evidence-based medicine is a very specific approach that excludes a lot of evidence and prioritizes others, and it's guaranteed to let down the vast majority of people. And yeah, that's obviously been a theme that I'm encountering 
right from the early years onwards. So yes, I got into this initially working primarily in the strength and conditioning space. So working with a lot of athletes, some of which were elite, some of which were weekend warriors. But nonetheless, my specialty ended up being uh, fat loss. And so that was something that naturally tends to draw the crowd. And that was where I started to work more with the general public. That was where I started to see this very distinct difference in the results that people were getting. Some were responding really well, some weren't. And so the ideas clearly weren't wrong there was something that was stopping them from working in a very decent minority of those that I was working with. So, you know, that was a very obvious first confrontation with these dilemmas. I had my own challenges in 20, well, 2007, uh, very briefly, which pretty much taught me what was wrong with mainstream medicine. Uh, I did try to apply the model and the results told me exactly how valuable it was. And then another much more severe dicing with issues in 2012, moldy flat, two hits on my spine, the wheels came off. And that taught me what was wrong with my model. So um, yeah, and, and it did definitely prompt a, yeah, a search for clarity. And that's where the the audits of the results, the testing, the uh, yeah, breaking down uh, individuals into what issues do they specifically have? Um, obviously, we can spot mitochondrial issues a mile away, but I could never tell whether it's a shortage of carnitine or lack of B1. The tests tell us that. The results show us what we get when we solve their specific issue. What's stopping them from having a fair chance of responding. And so, yeah, it can often fall into that category of the body is self-healing. The body will, will solve its own problems unless there's an obstacle that is standing in the way. And that's the key for most of my investigations, at least in the early stages, what is stopping this individual from responding the way that they should. And weird thing is that when you take away those obstacles, everything becomes very, very easy. Uh, but sometimes it can be difficult to reach that point. So, so yeah, so that's pretty much been the themes that have uh, framed my, my journey over the last 17 years, wrapped up in what I hope was a reasonably concise answer. <laughs> yes, it was. So what you're saying is, and I agree with you 100%, the body is a self-healing mechanism. And as long as you identify the interference, the obstacles, as you called it, the innate intelligence could go to work and start healing that body. And so your job, my job, everybody's job should be, what are those obstacles? What are the interferences? And unfortunately, it's not as easy as just eat less and move more. You know, there is a point where calories do matter, but I think it's more of a distraction and very low on the priority list. And when it comes to fat loss, especially in the US, a lot of fitness influencers or nutritionists and dietitians, they believe it's really just a matter of energy balance and you just got to move your body and eat, eat less and that's a you're going to get the results you want. Now, why is that flawed and what have you seen with that method in your, with your clients? Yeah, it, it's very flawed and of course, I'm sure 
there is a number of people who will hear me say that and feel that stirring within them to shout out the chant. Law of thermogenic, second law of thermogenic states that, yeah, the uh, energy uh, balance cannot be disturbed. And, and this is the key thing. It is true that, yeah, ultimately, calories in versus calories out is a really big deal, but both can change. And this idea that the human body, after 2.7 billion years of evolution, hasn't learn any tricks to handle a calorie shortage is pretty absurd. Uh, but yet that entire model of calories in, calories out is entirely dependent on the concept that the body doesn't change its energy usage if we underfeed it. Despite the fact we know it does, because, well, if it didn't, then low-calorie diets would work. But anyone who walks down the local high street on this side of the pond or down the mall on yours, have a look around. Most of those people that you see who are overweight, they're already dieting and they're using low-calorie diets. So we can see without getting technical, without considering any mechanisms whatsoever, whether or not this works or not. Equally, we can gain great insight as to the scientific rigor of a lot of these influences when on a Monday they're posting about this is the simple equation that everybody just needs to accept. You just need to eat less and move more. And then the following day they're saying, ah, I now take honey before bed because it balances my blood sugar levels better. It's like, oh, sorry, I thought a calorie was a calorie was a calorie. And now you're telling me that, oh, different foods have different properties because they interact with the body in different ways. Uh, but yeah, nonetheless, here we are. We're what, 160 years after the first ever uh, formal layout of the calories in, calories out model. And we're still waiting for a single long-term study that shows it works, despite the billions and billions of dollars spent on research to try and ch uh, demonstrate that. It's just, um, yeah, absurd to think that the body hasn't got adaptive measures because it really does. And that's a particularly interesting thing and a vital thing to bear in mind whenever we're looking at people who are struggling to lose weight, people who should lose weight but aren't, people who are doing the exact same protocols as their friends who've got great results but they're not. Why is their body going into an energy conservation mode? These mechanisms, we know they exist but it's always fascinating to see when the signals are being misread potentially due to inflammation or insulin sensitivity issues or a multitude of other issues in the mitochondria that tie into these things. When that's the case, where well, these, these individuals, their energy management systems might misread and, and deploy a system that has served humanity very well, uh, but of course is, is maladaptive in this environment for which there hasn't been enough opportunity to adapt. But uh, yeah, we have the tools to measure where those problems are coming from and to take action, resolve them. And it's always very impressive and pleasing to see what happens on the other side of doing so. And it's so relieving to people. They don't have to track every single calorie that goes into their body. The deceptive part about the whole calories in versus calories out approach is that it works short term. Uh, in terms of weight loss, maybe not fat loss, but weight loss. And there's a big difference between, between those two. But the people who do it, they step on their scale each week and they see the weight going down. 
and it's deceptive because you you think this is it. I just got to keep doing this. And then all of a sudden, the weight slows down a little bit more. So you cut the calories more or exercise more or both. And then you see another budge. But what's happening? The body's adapting to that. The metabolism is adapting to that. So more accurately, it should be energy in versus energy out. How is your body processing that energy in? Which is, to your point, boils down to cellular metabolism and the mitochondria. And you mentioned that the body is very adaptable. One of those amazing adaptations that occurs in the body is when you put the body in a state of ketosis. And you and I both know, Merrick, that there's nothing new about keto, ketosis. It's not even necessarily a diet. It's a metabolic process. And we wouldn't exist today if our ancestors didn't have that adaptability to tap into ketosis and give the brain a fuel source so they could go out there and hunt and kill. They would be blubbering idiots and they would have died. So there's nothing new about it. And I know that there's a lot of misconceptions regarding keto. And you, when you first emailed me, you, you kind of shared some of the things out there. And I completely agree with you. You also wrote a great article. So I'd love for you, to, for you to dive into the ketogenic diet. We'll call it that, but it's more of a metabolic process. And what are the pros and cons of keto? What have you seen? And how do you utilize it with your clients? And what benefits have you seen? Yeah, okay. Let me uh, try and tackle that. Because obviously, what, what's always so... Uh, relevant when it comes to any discussion about the ketogenic diet is the dogma that comes with it. And there always seems to be the two camps, some of which are preaching in evangelical tones about how the keto diet is evolutionary proved, it's the ultimate fueling for the human system, and that everybody should be doing it. Meanwhile, we have others, sometimes includes doctors saying, oh, it's a dangerous starvation state, or that you know, all that protein is going to hurt the kidneys, which A, has been disproven multiple times in every different subject uh, yeah, investigation that's gone into that. So, but also the ketogenic diet isn't even a high protein diet. Um, and that's where, yeah, it, it demonstrates the level of misconception that still exists about this diet, which as you say, it's not new. Sometimes the ideas are new to people, but there's just so much misconception, so much dogma. So yeah, I see it as a fantastic tool, one that has a number of benefits that no other intervention can match, especially when it comes to helping to reset energy metabolism. It's very relevant that the three most common issues we have with energy metabolism are insulin sensitivity issues, aka insulin resistance, inflammatory shutdown of a particular enzyme uh, that brings carbohydrates into the metabolism. That enzyme is PDH, pyruvate dehydrogenase. And equally, uh, mitochondrial hypoxia or cellular hypoxia, whereby this can be caused by anemia, it can be caused by particular types of inflammation that affects the capillaries, mold exposure being a very classic example, it can even be caused by hydrogen sulfide production in the gut. But the most common cause is a opening up of the gut lining, the increased intestinal permeability, aka leaky gut which allows the entry of endotoxins into the bloodstream. Now, these endotoxins are little fragments of dead bacteria, uh, often called lipopolysaccharides. It's the exact same thing, just uh, under a different name. 
and they don't cause much issue in the gut. But if they get into the bloodstream, well, now what we've got is tons of bacterial DNA interacting with our immune system. And we get a very disproportionate inflammatory response, one that's very well characterized by uh, overproduction of nitric oxide. Nitric oxide, of course, it can compete with oxygen. Uh, so whilst it does have healthy roles and the right amounts in the right places, it is often where this will compete for oxygen for absorption. And thus these individuals, they have all the oxygen they need, but they can't access it at the mitochondria. And this is where we see such a common yeah, problem with that. In any case, I've laid out those three common issues and it just so happens the ketogenic diet helps to resolve all three. And that's where there are lots of uh, opportunities to employ that, not just to fuel somebody as a means of compensating for these issues, but directly helping to resolve them, uh, especially in regards to insulin sensitivity. The key thing is you can normally resolve insulin sensitivity by giving those receptors a break. The problem being is, well, if you take away the carbs when somebody's needing them, then they're going to be subject to real pronounced stress, which uh, elicits adrenaline, which drives up the blood sugar levels, and suddenly we haven't gained anything. And that's generally what we see. It's startling how many people will actually see worse insulin sensitivity after cutting back on calories through that mechanism. But of course, you can cut those carbs, you can reduce your insulin production, you can give those receptors a break without those stresses should the central nervous system be fueled through a different source, through ketones. So a really wonderful opportunity to just give those receptors a holiday, allow them for a reset so that not only can we expect to see very measurable benefits over the weeks that follow, but equally, if they now wish to go back to a carbohydrate-based diet, they can experience benefits from that too. Equally, when it comes to that inflammatory shutdown of carbohydrate metabolism, well, one of the most powerful anti-inflammatory interventions we have available is the ketogenic diet. It's not the only anti-inflammatory intervention. There's other options there, but it does do a very reliable job there. And it just so happens that in low oxygen environments, ketones can be a fantastic help. And this is where we see at normal physiological levels a almost 40% increase in blood flow to the brain, and thus oxygen delivery uh, in those states. And suddenly we we get a answer as to why were all the Sherpas in the 1950s Everest Exploration Journals, why were they so keen on the Akbata, which is something that features a lot in, in those journals. They probably uh, weren't so worried about the mechanisms or their level of ketones and measuring beta-hydroxybutyrate. But they knew one thing, that if they consumed tons of yak butter, they felt better up the mountain. And now we know why. So yeah, it, it's an interesting one. Like anything else, we want to recognize, well, what does it offer us? How can this be applied to improve the results that we get? And this is where whenever we see one or more of those three issues, well, 
it's not the only option we've got, but certainly very powerful, very reliable option. And that's the reason why you'll see so many people who've had a successful transition into ketosis, which of course does not always happen, but you'll see those that do uh, only say good things about it. Well explained. So I have a, a couple of follow-up questions on that. You mentioned leaky gut. What would you estimate? I, I don't think there's a study to show a stat, but what percentage of the population has some form of leaky gut? There's a difficult one. I mean, I, I could only guess really purely because the people I see are a self-selecting population. As I began to get better results in you know, those people that weren't responding, they then referred other non-responders. And before you know it, I've spent the last decade mainly dealing in the complex and chronic cases, the, the so-called impossible cases. And so that's not a fair reflection of the population at large. So... I wouldn't be surprised if we're looking well over half of all individuals are experiencing some form of leaky gut on a chronic ongoing basis. And I define that as a chronic ongoing basis because every single one of us will experience a leaky gut when we're under stress. And that's something that very few people ever really touch on. Uh, so one of the biggest costs of the stress response is the inflammatory effect that it has due to the opening up of the gut lining, which often just is a totally separate discussion point to the stress response, and it shouldn't be. If we recognize what the stress response is actually for, what it does, suddenly it becomes much more intuitive. And in that regard, what I'm talking about is the, the primary purpose of the stress response, which is to get more energy into circulation so that we're better equipped to meet the expected demand. And that is the primary purpose of the stress response. Now, the key thing with that is that, yes, of course, that involves the release of energy from stores in the liver and the fat cells and the breakdown of uh, yeah, glycogen in, in, in the muscles for usage but it also involves the opening up of the gut lining. So this is where sympathetic activity actually uh, activates these SGLT proteins, sugar and glucose linked transport proteins, in an attempt to grab more sugars and salts, the exact things it wants to help deal with the expected demands. And that's all good and well, and it does a great job of allowing in those nutrients, but at a cost. And that's that we are now seeing channels open up in the cells that line our gut. So whereas if you have inflammatory chaos in the gut or you have fermentation, hydrogen gases, that tends to separate the cells. So that's the paracellular permeability. But this is a different type with the exact same cost. This is transcellular permeability where the cells themselves open up a channel to bring in those sugars and salts but in doing so, letting in those endotoxins. And that's where we get the inflammation. That's where there's the nitric oxide, which can potentially compete with oxygen. Now, that's where 
we can often see the inflammatory impact on glutamate levels in our brain. We start getting that real horrible, tired, but wired feeling. The interesting thing, of course, is a lot of people will be able to tolerate huge levels of stress on a daily basis, provided that their stress response and their cortisol production and their cortisol sensitivity remains decent. And these are the people that will live on the edge. And hey, they're not feeling amazing, but they're fine because the cortisol is suppressing that inflammation, is stabilizing the downstream effects, the costs that would otherwise come with that stress response. And equally, it's turning off the stress response. But what happens when you cross that certain threshold, when you have just enough stress to create that little bit more endotoxemia, which in itself can then switch off the cortisol receptors, down-regulate their sensitivity. Now your fire engines, which were working overtime, putting out the fires, they've melted. That's where people tend to find that they'll have an illness for a week and they were never the same. Or they'll find that you know they had three or four nights bad sleep because of stress and nothing ever went back to normal. And now they just start accumulating this growing list of complaints and mystery ailments. So yeah, it, it's so important to recognize the role of stress in um, opening up the gut lining. And yeah, in that regard, all of us will be subject to that when under stress. The key thing is, yeah, how many of us have a continuously porous gut lining? 50%, who knows? More than we would like. I think that's fair to say. Yeah, I agree with you. I would say, I would estimate 70, 80%, right? That would just be a pure guess. I've noticed a lot of people have issues with caffeine, especially caffeine in coffee. Now, don't get me wrong. I love myself a cup of quality coffee, but the truth is I've seen so many of my Keto Camp Academy students have a glucose spike from caffeine, knocking them out of fasting or creating some digestive issues, bloating, and most commonly, jitters and irritability. We know excessive caffeine and caffeine sensitivity can cause adrenal problems, which has a lot of negative effects It makes you more dependent on the caffeine and it puts you in this sympathetic fight or flight state. And for a lot of people, that is problematic. Everyday Dose solves the problem of regular coffee while drastically building on its benefits with added supplements. What I love about Everyday Dose, it's low acidity, cold extracted coffee, and a micro dose of caffeine blended with collagen protein, functional mushrooms, and nootropics which will improve your focus, your energy, and your immunity. I just feel different in a really good way when I have Everyday Dose versus regular coffee. And I want you to experience the same. So if you want to check out Everyday Dose, head over to everydaydose.com slash Ben and use the coupon code KETOCAMP. You're going to get an extra five on the go dose travel pack to take with you anywhere you go. I take these travel packs with me and it is a game changer because when I'm traveling, it's hard to find First of all, a clean cup of coffee, but almost impossible to find coffee with these functional ingredients. So head over to everydaydose.com slash ketocamp. Use ketocamp to get your bonus gift or click the link in the podcast notes down below. And I agree with you, stress. There's there's three different types of stress. Mental, emotional stress, which you mentioned. There is physical stress, uh, which you dealt with. And then there's also chemical stress, which you touched upon with mold and also heavy metals, et cetera, glyphosate. 
all of those are are bad. Uh, all of those could wreak havoc, especially when they're chronic. And I'd love for you to explain when we do have these, we'll call them cellular threats, stressors. Mm-hmm. What is the mitochondria doing? Because I know I know the mitochondria is not just some mindless energy factory. It does produce energy, but there's also a, an intelligence to the mitochondria. So what is happening at the mitochondrial level when the mitochondria are perceiving all of this stress coming into the body? So, yeah, in that regard, we've got you know such a dizzying array of interplay between different levels of function of the body. So we can look at the mitochondrial level, we can look at the cellular level, the hormonal level, the emergent level involving you know, consciousness, emotions, etc. And all of them are integrated uh, whenever we're subject to any type of stress. So in that regard, yeah, there, there's a number of things that are impacting on the mitochondria. Specifically, it's always going to be asked to do more. The basic definition of stress that framed my thinking on all of these things is any scenario that asks the cell for more resources than it's currently got available. Now, fortunately, the human body is you know, super well equipped to handle these scenarios. And that's where hormones like adrenaline can play a fantastic role and actually influence some of the later enzymes in the Krebs cycle within the mitochondria. And in doing so, push more electrons into that last phase of energy metabolism, the electron transport chain, which can ultimately be compared to a conveyor belt and a furnace, uh, which holds these electrons that are captured from food and then combust them in the furnace with oxygen captured from the air. But yeah, what we're going to see there is a increase in the amount of electrons being thrown and squeezed into this conveyor belt. And that may well be more than is sustainable. Because one thing the human body hasn't ever done is adapt to scenarios it wasn't exposed to throughout evolution, which is sustained high levels of stress. And so, yeah, brilliant adaption on a temporary basis. But when you're pushing, pushing, pushing the mitochondria, especially that electron transport chain, well, it just so happens these highly reactive energy compounds, the electrons, are highly reactive. And a lot of them yeah, being pushed through uh, this conveyor belt will automatically generate a ton of oxidative stress. Now, again, this is where the beautiful and poetic construction of all of these metabolic responses comes to the fore. And a cell, when subject to stress, will typically activate what we could call the cellular protection response or the antioxidant response, specifically that NRF2 response. And that produces antioxidants, endogenous antioxidants to help counter that. But again, how far can we go? The only thing that's more amazing than the humans, uh, human body's ability to handle stress is how far we push it until it eventually falters. And so this is often where we can end up with the extreme oxidative stress uh, being emitted from that electron transport chain. Uh, and that's where we will yeah, see the induction of some repair process, but often we can overwhelm them, we can drain our NAD, and suddenly this 
super supportive nutrient for mitochondrial function is no longer promoting the function. It's all being gobbled up to try and desperately repair what's already been chemically burnt in this process. Just as importantly, especially if somebody has a little bit of a tendency towards holding too much iron in their cells, easily done if they're not eating enough copper, as in they're not eating the liver that their grandparents would have eaten very, very regularly. How are you you testing? So I would typically use blood tests that would take a look at copper and ceruloplasmin in the blood, but then also look at serum iron, transferrin, both of which reflect the iron in circulation, and ferritin, which reflects the iron in storage. Now, there's certain times when there are conditions and processes in play that will distort those uh, ferritin markers. So it's always important that we consider the context. But yes, if we're seeing excess iron and then you load a ton of oxidative stress, you are creating a wonderful environment to produce hydroxyl radicals, aka rust. And that's where we can get all manner of tragic consequences on energy production, mainly because human oxygen sensors don't actually respond to oxygen. They respond to the immediate product of oxygen, which is the hydroxyl radicals. That's the rust. Get too much of that, and your oxygen sensors think, well, we've got all the oxygen we could ever need. Why would we want to bring in more? And why would we bring in the apparatus that we uh, use to metabolize oxygen? That's copper. And thus, suddenly, we've created a self-perpetuating cycle. Low copper uptake, low copper availability, insufficient copper to move the iron out of storage. It now gets locked there, and suddenly there's even more rusting, even more of that problem, even more distortion of the oxygen sensors. So, yeah, the mitochondria have a wonderful capacity to jump to the beat when we ask them to do more and to work beyond their capacity, but we can't ask them to work beyond their capacity on an ongoing basis because sooner or later, the compensation events that the body deploys, we just need a slight chink in that arm and we no longer compensate. And suddenly we tend to pay all the costs all at once, which of course leads on to a totally separate discussion about how people think, I know what it is. It was, it was this thing. It was, it was that cold that I had for two days. Oh, I, 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 I trialed this different diet that had been recommended to me by a teenager wearing a bikini on Instagram, and that's what did it. And these were often the triggers, but more accurately, they impaired our ability to compensate for this massive, ginormous, ongoing, round-the-clock, never-ending stress that the body was doing such a wonderful job of meeting based on what it's capable of doing, which is actually only temporary. Well explained. You know, it's so important to understand what you just said about copper. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Morley Robbins' work, are you at all? I am. Weirdly enough, we were actually meant to have a chat a few weeks back, but uh, yeah, scheduling being what they are. So yeah, I'm, I'm uh, planning to catch up with uh, him soon because I actually discovered his work after years of coming at this from a totally different angle. So I was looking all at 
oxygen regulation, hypoxia signaling, how does the body respond to that, what's impairing it, which of course, when you're looking at oxygen, you're looking at iron and you're looking at copper. Because if it's moving oxygen in the body, it's an iron protein. If it's using oxygen in the body, it's a copper protein. And naturally, whatever the decisions the body makes in regards to oxygen management have direct and immediate impacts on how it handles the iron and the copper as well. So I've come at it from the oxygen management using a lot of the organic acids test and uh, alongside that, the blood testing for these, these markers. And uh, yeah, so then... Imagine my thoughts where I'm actually seeing someone describing the exact same elephant, but from a different angle. So uh, I, I dropped him a line and uh, yeah, it's a very friendly guy. And uh, yeah, I said, let's, let's chat. So uh, we will definitely get onto that. I imagine it could be one of the... Uh, yeah, most uh, yeah geeky discussions that uh, will go on this year, but uh, yeah, all in a good way. Yeah, totally. You're going to love the conversation with him. Uh, that's why it reminded me you were explaining very similar. I interviewed him a few months ago and he just blew my mind. And his book, uh, Cure Your Fatigue, is a great book. And I'm looking at my notes here for my conversation from him. And, and he's, he said 50,000 ions of copper are found in each mitochondria. And he's really for first removing what's causing a depletion in copper, right? And some of the things he mentioned is number one, taking ascorbic acid, right? The synthetic version of vitamin C. He also mentioned that there's antibiotics that disrupt copper hormone replacement therapy. Uh, and he recommends, like you said, eating raw liver or eating liver in general. It doesn't have to be raw. Organic bee pollen, real vitamin C, uh, magnesium and boron. Anything else you would add to that conversation for somebody who's trying to balance out that copper uh, iron ratio? So yeah, those are all very sensible steps. And it's very interesting to, to speculate on if you were a man in the street uh, or woman in the street with the usual type of complaints of you know, just not feeling that great, um, just being a bit tired all the time, it's really quite impressive how far people can go just from those basic steps. I tend to work with those individuals with much more entrenched and yeah, multifaceted issues. And they're still likely to see improvements from those steps. But often, yeah, what we'll need to do is to take a yeah, look at the self-perpetuating cycles that are going on. And probably the single biggest one there is one I've actually described on my website a few years back. I called it the adrenal endotoxemia cycle. But it's pretty much the development of what I was just touching on. When you have sustained stress response and the opening up of the gut lining, which then triggers this inflammatory response characterized by tons of nitric oxide, enough to compete with the oxygen. Well, not only do you now reduce the speed at which the mitochondria can work because if it can't access the oxygen it can't conduct that combustion and that whole conveyor belt gets backed up stacked up uh, with these highly reactive energy compounds and so this is where the body has the uh, safety valve that it can shut down the flow um, and it does this within the krebs cycle slows the flow of these electrons uh, in a more uh, more desirable way. But there's a cost, and that is A, you're now producing less energy for that cell. 
But two, what happens upstream of that slowdown? Well, this is where it will automatically and reliably reduce the activity of the insulin receptor. So now that's insulin resistance, protective insulin resistance, but that doesn't mean you're protected from the downsides. But most importantly of all, we've got inflammation driving stress on the body because inflammation means you've got huge swathes of your immune cells that are now activated. And there's very few things hungrier for energy than activated immune cells. So your body needs to find more energy to fuel that and maintain normal function. But at the very same time, you've got less energy available because of these mitochondrial blockages. So yeah, what is the stress response all about? Getting more energy into circulation to meet the expected demand. Now, we've already increased the demand and we've reduced the supply. And this is where we always think of that classic stress response. We've got normal levels of energy, then a tiger jumps out. And the stress response plugs that gap. But it works the other way too. If you've got really low levels of energy and you just want to put on dinner, you just want to take the bins out, you need a stress response now just to go about normal daily activities. And that's where we end up with more of that stress response, opening up the gut line, even more inflammation. And suddenly, yeah, getting control of that in anyone with long-term burdens on the metabolism is always going to be a, a, a big priority. And typically, most people with these long-term issues are going to need to look at that adrenal involvement to help the cortisol signaling that helps them adapt, helps them uh, avoid the costs of that opening up of the gut lining, but also the specific mitochondrial uh, support, equally uh, looking at things that are causing them stress, the simple things like lack of sleep or going long times without food or working 16 hours a day, but also the embedded things where our reflex areas of the brain, the, the brainstem, the limbic system that have learned to respond in a defensive manner to things that just don't require that. So that's where the somatic style work that retrains that system can be, be vital. But in essence, what I'm getting at is that the mitochondria is absolutely front and center for any discussion when it comes to copper and iron. And they are so vital for that. Copper also plays a role in a number of other areas, especially neurotransmitter balance. And yeah, the key thing, of course, when it comes to yeah, these individuals that have got this quite potent and out of control cycle going on is every single area needs to be tended to. We cannot have any major uh, issues leaving us short in any one zone because that will allow enough fuel to be continually poured on the fire. Just a little drip is enough to keep that alive. And if we tend to all of it, we extinguish it and then the body takes over. I, I love it. I, I agree with you. You know, in this day and age, the perfect diet alone will not get you well. It's so many more moving parts than just the perfect diet. Doing keto perfectly and fasting perfectly, awesome. But if you got chronic stress, mental, emotional stress, you live in a moldy home, you might have silver fillings in your mouth, uh, you might have SIBO. I mean, there's so many things to consider. Your stress bucket is getting full and full and full. And uh, taking supplements and doing keto, great. You might deplete some of that stress bucket a little bit, but you're not going to get to that point of thriving like you teach your clients to do. So it's a matter of really identifying those big stressors. 
Hey, Keto Camper, I want to just pause for a second and tell you about my favorite drink for metabolic health. On this podcast, we talk about the importance of metabolic health, metabolic flexibility. Well, this is called Good Idea, and it is a great idea if you're trying to reduce blood sugar and keep your insulin levels in a healthy range. It has zero calories, zero sweeteners, and none of the junk ingredients, and it tastes like a lightly sparkling water. I call it a functional sparkling water because it has been clinically tested and shown to reduce blood sugar spikes after a meal. It contains a blend of amino acids and chromium piclinate. Together, they slow gastric emptying and increase insulin sensitivity, allowing a steady release of glucose in the bloodstream where it can be transferred into the cells for fuel. It also contains zinc and potassium as an added benefit. They hooked you all up with a special coupon code. So all you need to do is head over to goodidea.us and apply the coupon code BEN, that is B-E-N, at checkout at goodidea.us. I'm going to drop that link in the podcast notes along with the coupon code. All right, let's get back to this episode. I've been in it, in the game for 14 years, so not uh, 17 years like you, but one of the, the things that I'm blessed to do is I, I get to work with a group of about 47 doctors. My mentor, Dr. Pampa is one of them, Dr. Minnie Pels and, and a few others. And every Tuesday we get together and we brainstorm, we do case studies on clients and patients. We look at what's happening and we've seen this and I want to hear your thoughts on what you've seen. It's typically a perfect storm that causes that person to experience that chronic fatigue, to experience those massive amounts of symptoms you were referencing. Maybe they had fillings in their mouth, silver amalgam fillings in their mouth for 20 years. But you know, for the first 14 years, they were fine. But then they combined that by moving into a new house that has black mold that they're unaware of. And then maybe they've had a wisdom tooth taken out. Now they have a cavitation and then boom, you have this perfect storm. And now they're doing keto perfectly, taking their liver supplements perfectly, and they don't feel good because it's these bigger stressors upstream that have destroyed everything downstream. And it isn't until you take care of that that anything downstream can work better. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, definitely. And yeah, that's a subject that I've, I've touched on in the past. Um, the way I phrased it is that often people are quick to make a judgment as to the effectiveness of a particular intervention. Uh, without understanding or giving consideration to, well, what is it likely to do given the current challenges that they're facing? Uh, the analogy I use there is, what if you had a roof with four holes in it? So you're getting wet every time it rains. So you plug up the first hole, you still get wet. So rip down that particular repair and put it on the second hole, still get wet rip that one down and uh, put it on the third and then the fourth. And obviously, same thing happens. And then obviously, I get involved and I say, yeah, here's all the holes that we're going to need to plug up. And they go, no, I've tried all those, don't work. Um, and I say, I think they will. Because there is a, a sense of inevitability about what the body will do when you remove those obstacles that stop it from doing what it was designed to do, which involves that self-healing process that we speak of. So yeah, this is where context, again, is so key in both those frontline clinical decisions and how we go about it, the speed that we go about it. It's what is the most useful aspect of 
of that question, who is likely to benefit? When are they likely to benefit? So yeah, context always so important rather than what unfortunately the human brain naturally defaults to. Is it good? Is it bad? What's the best supplement for adrenal fatigue? But of course, it doesn't work that way. Yeah, that, that's the challenge. That, that's a big challenge for us, especially in this social media day and age when I post a video that's like 60 seconds long and there's 200,000 views on it where I'm talking about how I love uh, block fasting, which is a long fast, right? And you know that doesn't mean everybody should block fast. There's definitely some considerations there. But for that 60-second clip, you could see that and, and think, I should do a block fast, right? And it's hard to get that message across. So conversations like this are great because we could go deep into that. But there's always nuances. And what are some of those nuances with keto? And I, I'm curious because I'm not sure if you know my philosophy or premise when it comes to keto. I think it's a great tool. You mentioned that earlier. It's a tool, not the tool, meaning it's, it's one tool of many. I love it. However, I don't believe in long-term ketosis. I'm, I'm a big believer in metabolic flexibility over long-term ketosis. What are your thoughts on that? How do you teach it to your clients? So I agree with you 100%. The human body is designed so that it can benefit from carbohydrate-based fueling or ketone-based fueling. And our aim, I think, should always be to ensure that there's nothing stopping the individuals we're working with from benefiting from both. Um, I have encountered some clients who will come in on their first appointment and say, no, I, I, I've been doing keto two years. It changed my life and I have zero interest in eating any other way ever again. And of course, there is something to be said for personal choice. But there's also something to be said for providing the wisdom that I've accumulated through the 17 years and the 10,000 hours of PubMed and all the audits that I've done on the frontline results, et cetera. And those would you know, make a very clear case that if somebody still can't tolerate carbohydrates or they, they feel worse for consuming them, then that's a big clue that we're not yet where we want to be in which case I'm going to work backwards and look at, well, where are those issues coming from? Does that look like that's a, a gut-based issue, fermentation in the small intestine? Does it look like that's an inflammatory shutdown of those carbohydrates? Is there you know, a lack of B1, etc.? So we'll be able to determine what it is very quickly. It could be the food chemicals that come alongside the type of carbohydrates they're eating, but I could go on. In any case, yeah, totally agree that... There are advantages to both of those fueling systems. The interesting thing, of course, being that most humans that we encounter may well have spent three or four decades in purely just a carbohydrate-based mode, in which case they are primed to benefit from the advantages that are available when they enter ketosis because they're so starved of them. Hence why, yeah, you take somebody who's eaten a vegan diet for five years, if you can get them to eat a little bit of liver, they're going to get such more of a disproportionate benefits from that than somebody who's already been eating 100 grams of liver a week for the last six years. So yeah, a lot of this you know, dramatic effect we see is either because the individuals have missed out on those benefits that come with the ketogenic states. Yes, there's advantages that come with the carbohydrate fueled state as well, but most people are well beyond discovering those. And indeed, 
by spending all day, every day, never actually spending enough time in that catabolic state, then they can often, yeah, end up actually experiencing challenges, which of course is the insulin sensitivity, etc. So yeah, that's where I would always look to obtain that metabolic flexibility. And if we're not seeing it, then we need to ask ourselves, well, what's still standing in the way? Intent to that. Yeah, well said. That's that's what it's about. I know you're all about um, being uh, all about nutrition over dogma, and I'm all for that too. I'm, all, I'm health over dogma. Same thing with keto. And unfortunately, people fall in love with uh, with keto or carnivore or vegan or paleo because it it works, and then they stick with it too long, and they're afraid to change because it worked. But in reality, we always changed our nutrition. We always varied our diet. We had times where we feasted and we had a lot of carbohydrates. We had times where we had no food. We had times where we had meat. It's really the variation and that creates an adaptation, which is a kind of like you were saying, it's a, it's a stressor, but it's more of like a hermetic beneficial stress versus a chronic stress where that hermetic curve drops, which you were referring to earlier. Short term, stressors could be great when you adapt. You go to the gym, you know this. This is it, yeah. Stress is good for us in yeah. the right doses, the right frequencies, uh, but I'm not sure how many people are actually getting the right dose. Right. That's, that's the thing. You know, if, if everybody could study hormesis and understand what your hermetic window or ceiling is and live in that, then everything you do should be applied to that hormetic zone, your unique hormetic zone, and you will thrive. But that unique th- zone is, is unique to you and you have to find what that is. But my question to you, would you say that being in ketosis long-term would be stress on the body? So I wouldn't be necessarily so worried about the stress. I would be worried more about the altered signaling. What is that telling the system about the environment? And will that eventually encourage the body into a lower level of energy usage, slow levels of energy liberation? Is it indicating that, well, we haven't had carbs in a long, long time. There's no insulin rise because insulin does wonderful things for the brain, for calming stress, for energy signaling, etc. So yeah, it's more a case of are we missing this reminder uh, into the system and those management zones that control our energy metabolism? We're missing that reminder that times are good. And there's no need to prepare for our ongoing starvation. There's no need to hold back. So go ahead and invest in the digestion. Go ahead and deploy a potent immune response as and when it's required. Go ahead and invest in the prefrontal cortex and thus allow for all these luxuries that don't actually contribute to our survival, but certainly help our mood and our clarity and our ability to remember names, numbers, details, to plan, to timeline, all the things that allow us to go about life and enjoy the things that we enjoy and be successful at the things that might help us pay the bills. Yeah, I like that. That's an interesting thought on it because back in the day, our ancestors, when when they were in ketosis, and yes, our ancestors were all in ketosis by their environment, they didn't do keto because it was their choice. They did keto because there was no food, right? And they had to fast and or 
there was only meat available. And you know, by default, when you only eat fat and protein, you're in ketosis. But believe me, whenever they had the opportunity to feast on fruit and carbs, they did it. They didn't look back at their tribe and say, you know, we're keto, we don't do that. So I like the mindset of... But I'm sure the Instagrammers of the time had something to say on what was right and what was wrong. <laughs> right. Well, I like, the, I like that idea. Like, what is it signaling to your body when, when you've been in ketosis for two years straight? What is it telling your body about the environment? Is it still signaling to your body that times are stressful, that you're still in survival mode, if you want to call it that? But when you intentionally, what I call keto flex, flex yourself out of ketosis with healthy carbs, you have a different pathway. You're burning sugar, you're burning glucose, and you teach the body about a different environment. But I believe it's the back and forth, the flexibility to go back and forth where you actually could find that, that magic. Um, so is that what you kind of teach your clients as well? Yeah, 100%. That's exactly the way I would look at it. Humans do well when they do well in bouncing in, in and out. If they're doing that, then yeah, they're getting the best of all worlds. And yeah, they'll find that the carbs can fuel their performance when they want to. They can provide that, that reassurance to the system due to the downstream signals, insulin, etc. But equally, yeah, they can still get the autophagy. They can get the anti-inflammatory effect, uh, the pro-mitochondrial effect of, of the, uh, the ketogenic diet too. So uh, why not take both? It's available. Exactly. Last thing here. You mentioned earlier the limbic system, and I think it's important for my audience to do some more research on the limbic system. My personal experience when I had, uh, I had mold toxicity, my, the house I used to live in. I mean, I live in Florida. Florida is very humid. Mold is everywhere. I've got a few uh, clients yeah. that I've worked with over the years from Florida. So yeah, it's, it's a thing. It's a thing. And for me, it was definitely a thing. So the house I used to live in had nasty black mold. And at the same time, I had eight silver fillings in my mouth. So imagine that 20 plus years, I had mercury vaporizing into my hypothalamus, living in a moldy home for four years. And I was doing everything perfect. I was spending $600 a month on supplements. I was doing CrossFit and keto and intermittent fasting and still felt awful. So then of course, I got into the research of mold and silver fillings and I uh, remediated the home, but eventually just moved out because I just wanted to get out of that source. And then I got the fillings out from a biological dentist and the detox and the mercury and I did that really well, and I'm still kind of doing detox on the mercury because it's so much. But the limbic system, here's what happened to me. I had to re, and I'm still retraining my, my mind, my brain, because I'll go into an elevator in the building I live in, and somebody will walk in with an excessive amount of perfume or cologne, and my limbic system starts to tell my heart rate to accelerate. I get sweaty, and I'm like, oh my gosh, there's toxins all over me. So I am actively telling myself, this is your body's way of protecting you. You are safe, and it's it's a work in progress. Do you do you do that type of, type of work with your clients as well? So I don't do that work directly. So you know, I consider myself obviously an expert in nutritional science and the application of that to get results in human beings. Uh, but more than anything, I would consider myself an expert in knowing when something's likely to work and when it's not likely to work. And when it's not likely to work, what are the options that will help us get around that blockade? And so that's where, yeah, I will often look at not only the patterns we're seeing on the front line, is this individual 
subject to you know, major anxiety? Or is it going the other way that the body is reflexively bracing against that? They're super tight, they're super tense. They don't actually feel the anxiety that we might expect. And this is one subgroup of individuals who are super stressed. You know, they are absolutely astonishingly stressed, but they don't feel it because A, the uh, physical tension is playing such a great role in numbing it. Uh, and it's so interesting to look at the neurobiology of that because, of course, we can look at all of these uh, traditional healing systems that speak of body armor. And then, of course, along comes modern neurobiology and shows us that muscular tension uh, changes the behavior of the insula, this relay station that conveys the uh, inner environment, allows us to feel what's going on uh, inside the body. So, yeah, so for some people, A, they're never getting out of that state. They're always in uh, maximal stress. So there's nothing to contrast it with. But B, it's just a bit tight, which of course, the longer that is the norm, the less we will feel the effects of it. That's just how our body feels. And so, yeah, they're the ones that will see, you know, super low heart rate variability, you know, something that we would anticipate, well, they should be incapable of going to work and, and, and maintaining some sort of normal lifestyle because they should be so anxious, but yet they're not. And they say, no, I'm not stressed. I understand why everyone else is. Yeah, everyone else should stop. But honestly, 16 hours a day doesn't, doesn't do anything to me. I don't feel anything for it because they were already hyper-stressed um, so that it doesn't change how they feel. So there's that group. Then there's also a very interesting subgroup, hugely overlooked in most conversations out there on the matter of stress, um, who were stuck in the freeze response. And this speaks to a bigger subject whereby there is two types of stress responses. One, that classic fight and flight, which, as I said, can be hidden beneath a layer of muscular tension, but would otherwise play out in the way that we would classically think. But then there's also the freeze response. So this is where uh, these reflex zones of the brain, specifically in the brain stem, are constantly calculating how much resources do we have and how much resources are necessary to meet the expected challenge? And that's where if there's too big a gap, it does not mobilize. It does not elicit the defensive response. It shuts down instead. So that's where if it's not necessary for life, don't expect it to get any of these limited resources. And the body will stay in that freeze until either there's more resources or the threat has reduced, at which point we see this major mobilization response. And suddenly they come to life, their brain starts working, but they get anxious too. And they probably get a bit of inflammation uh, as part of the deal. Sounds fun, right? But yeah, that's where depending on those individuals, where do they sit in those three brackets? And equally, um, yeah, what is their preferences? What are the other patterns that we're seeing on the front line? Yeah, to send them out for somatic experiencing or for breath work or for EMDR or some of the other uh, limbic retraining processes. There isn't one best, I would say probably breath work is the easiest to get into. 
and yeah, the, the, the most obviously impactful in the early stages. But uh, yeah, so that's where I would take the role of coordinator in these environments, wherever I see that the out-of-date rules um, that the reflex zones of the brains are working with and responding to and ultimately are changing physiology whenever they encounter changing physiology in a way that directly stands against our aims. Well, whenever I see that, yeah, then I'm going to act as coordinator, send them out to the right practitioner um, and yeah, have that retraining, rewiring take place because the brain's super plastic. It's uh, the, the, the concept there is so simple. All that needs to happen is for these sensations to be experienced while nothing bad happens which automatically forces this rewiring event and updating of these maladaptive rules that associated this sensory signal with some sort of danger. Because once upon a time, it clearly was connected either to a physical danger or more often in our world, a social danger, the, the risk of being excluded, which across the course of evolution is death in most cases. So um, yeah, retraining that. The problem, of course, is that the way the human brain is set up is that the reason we want to do the rewiring is because of this overreaction, uh, which now not only makes us feel awful, but also opens up the gut line and causes those inflammatory consequences and also redistributes energy away from where we want it to go, away from the areas involved in the healing and the resting, digesting, detoxification, etc. So the reason we want to rewire is because of the overreaction. But the rewiring process, which of course is predicated on that experience, the, 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 the actual experiencing of the, uh, the sensation, will often get close to that and these very same zones will then react, which kicks us out of the same state we need to be in in order to actually achieve that rewiring cue. And this is where all of those techniques are using the body to change the context, to hold back on that reflex response so that we don't get hijacked out of the introspective state. And thus we can proceed with that process of experiencing that sensation while nothing bad happens. And then the rewiring happens because these zones, they cannot respond to logic. They're not going to respond to, to thinking, to put it into context. These are the same areas that generate hiccups. You can't think your way out of hiccups. No mindset change is ever going to stop hiccups, but a change in the physiology and the signals that go into there suddenly change the behavior of that zone enough that it will just stand by as we go through that process rather than kicking off kicking us out and meaning that it's never actually going to get resolved. So yes, that's pretty much why I would send people out for that specific need as and when it comes up alongside the hormonal, the mitochondrial, the inflammatory cascades and all those other areas that contribute to this wonderful machine we call the human body. That's wonderful. You're a great uh, educator, my friend. Uh, your website is MerrickDoyle.com. We'll drop it down below. Anywhere else you want to send them? 
Um, that is pretty much my only press. Well, actually, I'm on uh, Instagram as well, Marek Doyle Nutrition. So, yes, um, I update my articles on the website or occasionally drop a uh, post on Instagram. I've also got uh, an academy to train practitioners. Uh, it's uh, at my website, marekdoyle.com slash academy. So if any of that is of any interest to the listeners, then, uh, yeah, drop me a line. Comments, feedback, questions, always welcome. I love it. We'll put that down below. Last question for you is regarding my favorite supplement that I have all of my clients take. It's called vitamin G. Gratitude. What are you grateful for today? <laughs> what am I grateful for today? I am grateful for the look of absolute utter unbridled joy on my little boy's face uh, as we played him the snowman. <laughs> That's, awesome. um, That's so cool. So... My wife loves Christmas, so she's been in the Christmas mode for you know, a, a few more days than most of the world. And uh, the snowman is now the pre-bed, uh, <laughs> the pre-bed viewing, which uh, yeah occurred just before we we came online due to the time differences. And uh, yeah, I I think my parents were. Nice. <laughs> I love it. Too. It's, I'm not going to try and describe it, but uh, yeah, it's something. That's awesome. You know, thank you. I'm grateful for you. Thanks for coming on the show. We'll do round two. There were so many other topics we didn't get to cover, which is good news because we just got so uh, we geeked out together. So. Really? Well, I am very happy to come and break down the nuance. Um, yeah. Nuance, context. Yeah. Let's let's go through all of that. Awesome, Merrick. Thanks. We'll put your information down below. Thank you so much for coming on the show, brother. Well, thank you very much. And uh, well, we'll speak soon. I really hope you enjoyed that conversation with Merrick. Go check him out. I told you he was a wealth of information. MerrickDoyle.com, M-A-R-E-K-D-O-Y-L-E.com. We'll put that down below. We will also put his Instagram and Twitter down below. And if you want to watch the video version of today's interview and all interviews, that's on YouTube.com slash KetoCamp. Hey, share this episode with a friend, post it on social media, and please consider leaving the show a rating and review. Thank you for listening to the show and spending part of your day with us. I'll see you on the next episode. This podcast is for information purposes only. Statements and views expressed on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Benazadi, disclaim responsibility from any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own. And this podcast does not accept responsibility of statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or non-direct interest in products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.